Welcome to the Courage Coaching and Counseling Podcast with Savon Penn, licensed professional counselor here in Portland, Oregon. Wherever you're at in life, this podcast will inspire and encourage you to be more brave in life and take the next best step between where you are and where you want to be. My guest for episode 43 of the podcast is Jill Johnson-Young. Jill is an expert in grief and loss, and I loved this conversation with her. I learned so much from her. She trains therapists in the area of grief uh, and loss, and it really comes through. She's got lots of experience. Uh, She worked for 13 years uh, in hospice care. She's written several books for children and adults and we talk about how to talk about grief and death and loss and dementia in this episode Uh, not only uh, professionally uh, but Jill she has personal experience with grief having been widowed twice and she shares more about that Uh, this episode we also talk about uh, how uh, therapists can assist their clients with uh, different types of loss. Uh, We talk about uh, unmentioned loss and grief, and we talk about anticipatory grief. Jill does several trainings that she describes uh, in this interview. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the show notes where you can uh, connect with Jill, her website, and uh, get more information about her training and the books that she's written. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jill Johnson Young. Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. I've listened to your podcast over and over, and it's lovely to be part of it. Thank you. I'm excited today because you are a grief expert, and I have so many questions. (laughs) I am so glad. I, anytime someone gives me a chance to talk about grief, I'm all in or dementia or both. Yeah. <laughs> so you uh, worked in uh, hospice care uh, as a social worker for, for uh, 10 years or more. Almost 13 years. I yeah. love hospice. It's a, a big part of my heart. Yeah. That and child welfare. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you're, uh, you've written a few books on, on grief. For, for children and and also uh, you've got a workbook for adults and uh, uh, want to learn more uh, about those re- resources. But before we dive in uh, to the topic of grief uh, today, can you share with listeners uh, uh, a bit of your background? <coughs> yeah, sorry about that. So I am an LCSW. I graduated from the University of South Florida. If anyone's looking for an MSW program, that's the one to go to. Um, and, um, I did do hospice for about 13 years. I was hospice here in California, but for that hospice in Florida, um, and I need to cough one sec, (coughs) sorry, the joy of COVID left me with asthma. Um, I, in hospice, I worked in pediatrics as well as adults, I did children's grief groups. I did children's grief at, um, with different kids who were losing parents or loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I ran support groups and ultimately I ended up in charge of, while in my master's program, 
don't ever do this folks. Um, all the chaplains, our bereavement center, our grief team and all the social workers. So everything psychosocial was under me. I had about 40 staff. Wow. Um, and we had our first Jayco inspection while I was doing that while going to school full-time. Don't do that. Wow. Um, but I love hospice because it's the one place where you get to walk people out of this world and support the family as they're saying goodbye. And it makes it possible for you to be part of a good death. And that's something hospice people say. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's an honor and a sacred moment to be part of that. And I wouldn't trade that time for anything. I did some of that in California as well, but California hospice is a for-profit model. And um, I'm not particularly fond of it because mm. they don't do as many services. Um, I also worked in child welfare for a long time um, for Versailles County, almost 20 years, and ended up in adoptions for about the last 10 years. And um, I opened up my private practice, Central Counseling Services in Riverside, Marietta, with Sherry Shockey Pope in 2010, in the middle of the last recession. <clears throat> and um, we've been full swing ever since. We're now up to about 35 therapists. Wow, that's huge. And, right, and we've hired probably 10 of them since the whole pandemic. <clears throat> I apologize. And um, we uh, have a variety of specialties. My specialty is grief, loss, end of life, chronic illness, and dementia. I also run a dementia support group online once a month. And now that's national because we're online and we're picking up people whose support groups in person have closed and didn't transition to online. And um, then I teach all the things to that I do to therapists. And um, I do contract work with a variety of agencies um, and appear occasionally on television and on radio shows. So if I get a chance to talk about grief and loss, I, I will show up because I don't think we talk about it enough. And I do write books about it because when I was doing hospice, I couldn't find books for children that really said all the right words. Children are innately curious. And from the age of about four or five up, they need to know all the things, especially little boys more than anything. Like how does that casket work? How does the top go up and down, right? Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are going to topple the casket if you're not watching them and it's not centered right. Mm -hmm. So I kept finding these beautiful books and they are beautiful. I love the books. I love Old Turtle. I love Badger's Parting Gifts and um, the one about the willow tree. They're gorgeous, but nobody dies. Badger disappears one night mysteriously up his tree and into the netherworld. And Old Turtle goes out to sea and just doesn't come back. And it talks about all the right things, which are the gifts people leave behind and the legacies. But I needed one that said, you know, if grandma's dying, you can get in the hospital bed with her and cuddle her as long as the nurse or somebody teaches you how to do it. And it's okay to be mad and sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. And yes, the big people around you, which is the term I use, um, are probably going to be acting a little bit snarky and snippy and not have a lot of time for you. And they will forget to take you to baseball practice. Mm -hmm. And um, if they make you go to a visitation and wear scratchy clothes, then they owe you ice cream afterwards on the way home. Right. All the things that kids need to know. So there's a book about how to prepare for someone to die. Um, there's a book about what happens when someone dies. And afterwards, it's got caskets and cremation and scattering and 
one year memorials, the things that kids need to know and that we don't say. And if we don't say, kids don't learn. Because, you know, up until the Civil War, everything related to death happened at home. That's why they had caskets with ice trays under them. And then we had the Civil War and embalming. And even then embalming was done at home or was done at the furniture store, which was also the casket maker store, which is also the undertaker. Usually that one person did everything in a town. Hmm. And now we have these, you know, especially with COVID, people die in the hospital, disappear, get cremated. And then we do a Zoom thing, you know, two months later. And that's not to criticize anyone who went through that because I have dealt with more COVID families than literally I can count. And it has been a dreadful time. I have lots of clients who've lost two and three family members, and that's a lot to cope with. But kids need to know how to grieve. And they need to know that we have these ceremonies and that people do get upset, but it's okay to be happy too. And so the books have kids stuff. And then in the back, they've got adult helpers. It's for the big people stuff how to talk to your kids, what words to say. Don't ever say grandma went to sleep because your child will never, ever go to sleep again. Terrifying. Yeah. Don't say God needed another angel because then God is not their friend. Mm -hmm. Right. uh, It's so uh, helpful to have those very specific things because well-intentioned, you know, trying to reassure your children and, uh, as, as parents, uh, but, but sometimes you can say the, say the wrong things. Well, we're conditioned to say the wrong things because we're conditioned to need to say something. And it's hard for therapists too. Don't anybody listening to this who's not a therapist think so. Therapists are not comfortable with death and grief either by and large. Mm-hmm. And so when someone comes in and talks about grief, sometimes they feel a need to fill up the space too. And so they say things like, well, aren't you relieved it's over? Well, you might be, but you don't want anyone telling you. You want to be the one to say those words. Yeah. Allowing people to get to that point themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. The messages we give grievers are just sucky. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote the book so that people would stop saying those things to kids. Stop saying that, you know, you're so lucky that daddy's watching over you all the time because then your seven-year-old's never going to go to the bathroom again. Right. Because creepy or take a bath. Oh, my gosh. Who's watching me? Grandma is right. Creepy. You've got to get in the kids space. Right. You want to if you have a faith, you want to introduce some of those ideas, but not not in a concrete way, because then you're going to have consequences. And um, then I wrote the adult workbook because when I um, lost both of my wives, I've been widowed twice. I had, um, I was married to my first wife for 23 years, Linda. She was an ER nurse and she had breast cancer about 10 years into our marriage. And we were told she was going to die then. And so we went through that date of diagnosis, pitfall, get ready. And then she didn't die. She beat it. And I don't know how she did it because at that time we couldn't have each other on insurance. So she went back to work the day after a double mastectomy. Wow. Um, with multiple drains and she worked all the way through chemo and ER patients would come in in and look at her in the ER and people would look at her when they came in and say, you're sicker than I am, honey, you need to go home. 
and she couldn't because she had to work to keep the insurance going for herself because I couldn't cover her, mm. right? And she beat it. She she died cancer-free. She was so proud of that. Mm. But um, they threw every kind of chemo at her, and she ultimately died of pulmonary fibrosis caused by one of the chemotherapy meds. And I won't fault them for it because it gave us 10 years we wouldn't have had. And then um, she did end up with pulmonary fibrosis. And while she was dying and on hospice, she got to be very close to one of her nurses. They were two of a kind, two peas in a pod. They had the same background, the same dads, the same everything. They both loved chocolate. I didn't know it, but while I was at work, they were at the house, you know, drinking yoo-hoo's together. Because when you have pulmonary fibrosis, it's eat or breathe. You can't do both. And so liquids and chocolate ice cream went down really well. And if you're dying, you get whatever you want in our house. You know, you want all the chocolate, you get all the chocolate, right? And um, ultimately, before Linda died, she said, uh, I need you to marry Jill because she's got the kids. We had three adopted children at that point. And she said, and you, I can't leave her alone. And we both told her to shut up, but she told the minister, she told all our friends, she told our children. Mm. We ended up together afterward and then Casper ended up with Louis body dementia. And it took three years to get her diagnosed. She died six months after diagnosis. Mm. And uh, that was not a good death. And then during that time, because I'd broken the widow rules and remarried, because widows are not supposed to remarry, widowers are, widows aren't. There are rules about these things. They're unwritten, but they're very firm. Um, I lost a good part of my support system. So uh, one of the people who came in to join a support system was the funeral director who'd met with Linda and me to plan her, her own funeral. And um, she started seeing all the blogs I was writing about what this was like and all the crazy town stuff we went through trying to get the diagnosis and I wrote the blog when Linda was dying. I kept it going with Casper's illness in part because I didn't want to talk to people. If you want to know what's going on, read the blog. If you don't want to know, don't read the blog. I'm not calling you back, mm-hmm. right? Therapists don't like talking on the phone anyway, right? We talk all day. We don't want to talk at night. Stop yeah. that. But don't call need, us. You needed to process it. I needed to process and I needed people to know what was going on. So if they came by, they weren't surprised. Mm-hmm. And um, so she started coming by and now I'm married to the funeral director. So yeah, I've been married three times, widowed twice, broke all the widow rules. So that that's uh, the, the rebellious widow. That's why I wrote the rebellious widow because there wasn't much out there that said grief doesn't have to last forever. There wasn't much out there that said, um, these are the rules people are gonna impose on you and you don't have to follow them. And this is how to not follow them. There wasn't anything out there that said, if you don't break the rules, you're going to get sick. And in fact, I did get sick because I didn't initially break the rules enough. So I had a stroke very close to the time that Casper died. Mm. And I have a few residual effects. I walk with a cane as a result now. And I really found that there was nothing out there that didn't say things like grief is the measure of your love and you're going to grieve forever if you really love them. If you go on Pinterest and look up grief, you'll find all kinds of stuff that sounds so sweet. But the implication is when someone dies, you have to stay in that space of grief for the rest of your life or you're not honoring their memory. 
And that's just nonsense. And it's not healthy. And it's not what the research says is healthy. Mm. And yet we all fall for it. And therapists fall for it. And I saw two therapists who fell for it and I fired them both. So yeah, that's, that's the background. It's a little muddy, a little messy, but it, it's meant that I've been able to come out on the other side and I can remember both of their lives as well as all the other people in my life who've died. And I can remember the happy moments and I can remember the tough moments, but I'm not grieving. I may have moments where I'm sad, you know, anniversaries come up. Mm-hmm. I go to the beach and remember them or go to the cemetery, but I don't stay in that space. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such an important message. And, and, and I, and I love seeing my, my friends who, who are, are able to get to that place mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and ex- experience joy uh, right. uh, again and, 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 and the freedom to, to live. Um, and, and Absolutely. Um, for folks, Jill, that, uh, so that, that's moving on or, or, or continuing to live um, uh, after a loss. I, I would like you to talk a little bit about two, two types of grief that, that you teach about mm-hmm. and, and, and are familiar with. Um, uh, one is what about grief when you haven't lost the person yet? Okay. Like with dementia. dementia. And then can you ex- uh, explain uh, a little bit or teach a little bit about anticipatory anticipatory grief? grief? Anticipatory grief. Because that's I, a hard one to say, isn't it? I, I work with a lot of folks with anxiety um, and uh, uh, obs- obsess- obsessions with their health. Mm-hmm. and con- concerns about death, especially with COVID this last year. Yeah. So could you talk about grief before we've, we've lost someone, but we've kind of lost them. And the unacknowledged losses, the unmentioned losses, there are so many. When I work with clients or with groups, I send them home always with at least one homework assignment, which includes for the entire course of your life, I want you to write down all the losses you've had. And that includes moving um, when you were a kid, if you're military, pets, um, job changes, even job changes you choose, that's a loss. When I went from CPS to, to hospice, I loved where I was going. I left people behind. I left an identity behind. Retirement is a biggie. Um, loss of roles, loss of ability. COVID has left a lot of people disabled and It has also left a lot of seniors who've been locked down for a year or a year and a half. Um, They've been left with a lot fewer faculties than they had when we started because they were so isolated. And that's really hard. And with dementia, you have one loss after another, sometimes multiple losses a day. When you're looking at someone who right in that moment can't remember who you are or can't remember where they left something or are psychotic because they have Louis bodies in their brain or they are losing connection with people or they're realizing that other people are uncomfortable with their illness. So they're just not showing up anymore. And so their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And then the caregiver ends up having losses because they feel isolated from their friends and other people. And they also sometimes catch a whole lot of criticism because everyone is an expert especially when they're not there, right? 
everyone's an expert. You should be doing this. You should have, should have, should have, should have. Frequently in our dementia support group, we have people being sued by their own family members because they're expending money to help support the process they're in and the family members want the money for after the person who dies. And it turns into this giant clash. So there's all those losses and we need to acknowledge them. And as friends, we need to be listening for them. If you have someone, for instance, who's got a loved one with dementia, reach out to them and ask them, you know, what is it like to not have that connection you used to have anymore? What kind of connections are you losing that maybe I can fill in on? What, how is it being so isolated right now with COVID? And with coming out of COVID, do you dare come out and be part of wor the world again, knowing that you've got someone who's super frail at home? And even though immunizations are wonderful, they don't always work. And so there's, those losses need to be grieved and they need to be said out loud. They need to be talked about. They need to be things that we share amongst ourselves that we're looking for in our kids and that we're teaching kids that they should be able to say out loud, this is a loss and it hurts. You know, when kids lose yeah. a pet, Parents usually at 50% of the time, well, the dog ran away or we took the dog to a farm and it's going to live out its days with, you know, clover and cherry. The dog died. Right. And they're not part of being able to, you know, bury the dog and be part of it. And so that becomes an unacknowledged unspoken loss. And then we replace the dog. And so all of a sudden we get the message that people who die are replaceable or things that go away are replaceable. The car crashes, we get a new car, everything's fine. No, maybe I was really attached to that car. Maybe that was a really scary moment when that car crashed and, and I need to get through that part still. There's a ton of losses in our lives that most people don't consider losses. When I give that assignment to clients or to groups, they're like, oh yeah, no sweat, five or 10. And they come back the next week, 40, 50, 60, right? Yeah. Because they've had a life and even a 12 year old, but if you're in foster care, how many losses have you had? Mm -hmm. You've lost your family. You've probably lost two other foster families. You've lost your sense of belonging. You've lost your clan. You've lost, you know, a sense of having some control over your life because somebody named a judge is in charge of you now. Mm -hmm. I had a kid once that the adoption was taking forever because there was a long, long, long judicial spat and the kiddo got to sixth grade from third grade. By the time we were done, I flew up to see him in Northern California every month. And he looked at me and said, now, Miss Jill, I thought you said judges were smart. And I said, well, they are. I was thinking back in my head, not that judge, but I didn't say it. <laughs> and um, he said, I looked up judges in school today. Do you know those are men that wear dresses and all they do is sit on a chair all day long? <laughs> you're right. He said, that doesn't sound smart. There's lots of different ways that you could help kids without sitting in a dress on a chair all day. He should come visit me and find out why I want to be adopted. Mm. You're right. That child was experiencing loss because he wanted to be reattached permanently to his adoptive family. So there's a zillion different unacknowledged losses and they all require grieving. They need to be named. We need to work through the what's left what didn't get finished, what 
what things did we have in plans that aren't going to happen now? Hmm. Which things am I going to do? And I'm not, I, were we going to do when I'm not going to do now, you know, and what things do I need to change about my life to accommodate this loss? Or how did I accommodate that loss all those years ago? Or did I even get to say that loss out loud all those years ago? And do I now need to say them and talk about them? Lots of kids who grew up in the military end up, if they're with the family that says, we don't talk about it, we just buck up and keep going, move to the next space. Here we go. Those folks need to say goodbye to the kids that they said goodbye to 25 years ago mm-hmm. and see if there's some reconnections they can make and talk about that time because they didn't get to then. That wasn't part of military life for them. That wasn't their family culture. It's just amazing when I hear the st- stories of folks that, that grew up uh, in the military. Oh, yeah. 20, 30 different places. Right. And, and and it's part, they don't, their parents don't serve. They serve too. That we should have, you know, some kind of veterans families day where we honor the families as well, because they do have so much they put into living that life and they didn't choose it. They were born into it. Our immigrant families have lots of losses. They lose their culture. They lose their sense of security. Um, some of them are here without um, legal standing. And so they live in a constant state of fear. And so there's that loss of security there. We, we've had so many losses. And then COVID, how do we even acknowledge that? Yeah. Right. The whole world fell into that. The As you're sharing today, Jill, what's hitting me is uh, in the last few years, the importance of unaddressed trauma and mm-hmm. understanding trauma, how it affects us uh, emotionally and physically and with our health. Um, but we have so much unacknowledged grief in society. We do. And we don't call it grief and we don't call it loss. And we don't especially like grief. When I go to conferences and I you know, have a table and it says grief behind me somewhere or death, I actually have t-shirts that say, let's talk about death. Yes, I said that. But I only wear those to grief conferences because they scare therapists at other conferences. Um, Social workers love those. Um, I will see people actually put up their conference materials to kind of block their view of me to go around me because grief is not a a topic lots of people want to cozy up to. But it's a reality. We None of us get out of this world without losing people, losing things, losing stations in life. That's our reality. We need yeah. to be able to know how to cope with it. To, to, to be honest, <laughs> this morning when getting ready to talk to you, I could feel the grief rising to the surface. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. it's there. Um, it is. Like it and it's it's not uh, like you said. Uh, it 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 doesn't. It don't have to be grieving actively, like for forever. Um, but. The realities of what we've been through, they, they, they flare up and rise to the surface. They do. And if we yeah. haven't grieved them completely, then they're still just sitting there. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. for every loss that we haven't grieved, it catches up to the next loss and the next loss. Mm. And mm-hmm. that's where we have to be able to grieve them. That's with COVID. If we've got people losing multiple people, if we can help them grieve each person as it comes sort of wave style. The research says, and the reality is they do better. If, if they try and pack it down, I don't have time for this one. Got to go on to the next one. Those folks end up with a whole lot more emotional mess in their head that they have to disentangle afterward. 
And we have that research from the early AIDS crisis. We know that folks who maintain connections to family of choice, not, next, not necessarily biological family, but the people they choose to be family mm -hmm. and friends and supporters, if they have that and if they have some sort of way to center themselves, whether it's a belief system or some kind of object or whatever it is, even the dog, because dogs are important. If they have that and they can grieve each loss as it comes and acknowledge it and do some kind of ceremony for it before going on to the next one, those folks did really okay during the AIDS pandemic in the early days when everybody died in four or five months. I was a social worker then in our AIDS project. It was, it was warfare. But if you had each loss and you took each loss and you named each loss and then went on to the next one, the survival and the healthy response was so much better than I can't talk about it. I'm too busy. We got the next one coming. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, what you're describing, <laughs> naming it, remembering it, facing it. It, it takes time. It does. You need space to, to, to grieve well. You need time out. And as therapists, we don't give that to ourselves. Yeah. Right. You go on social media in the in the lockdown therapist groups for those who are not therapists. We have groups that nobody else gets to see in and you don't want to see in probably. But somebody will come in at least once a week and say, I just lost a client. I don't know what to do. I've never experienced this. Mm -hmm. And fully three quarters of the responses will be, you know, well, you can't go to the service. You can't really say it out loud. Just, you know, remember them quietly and move into your day because you can't let your other clients down. Like, no, no, no. You need to take a time out light a candle, do whatever it is you need to do. We can go to visitations and not acknowledge who we are. We don't have to wear a name tag. Nobody else does either. But if we need that for our sense of saying goodbye and are taking that moment out, we can do those things, hmm. right? Yeah. I have a book that I write people's names or initials down in and some of their um, the things we worked on in code. No one would be able to know what it is if I died myself. But that's my, I work with a lot of chronically and terminally ill folks. And when I lose one, I, I write down the things that I will always remember from them and the great progress they made and the lessons I learned from them, because we all learn from our clients. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, for, for the social workers and therapists listening, um, how how is grief affecting us as helpers and, and what advice do you have for us? Oh, it's exhausting for us. Yeah. It's um, especially right now. Now, some of us are, some are back in their offices now, some are in agencies where they're connected to other people, the solo operators, especially they're getting hit harder in the comments I get on the, I get a lot of messages from people in the back um, quietly and they feel just very isolated and they feel like it's not their loss because you know the family lost this person, not them. Or if they've lost a family member, they don't feel justified in taking time off because they've got a full caseload and they need to you know, stick it out. And I'll admit that there are times where I feel like I can't take the day off because I know I've got a high needs client coming in, mm. but I might clear out everybody else around them if there's been something that's really, really gone on, because I need that time to kind of collect my thoughts, even just to sit out in the sunshine. 
and clear my head out and journal a little bit and play with my dogs. But it's hitting us physically, it's hitting us emotionally. It's causing some people to retire early because they're just feeling overwhelmed. And the need right now for mental health care is so huge. Yeah. Right. There, there aren't enough of us to go around. We have trouble finding people to work for us. I know other practices are too nationwide. And that's because there aren't enough of us. So in our practice, we try to take really good care of our therapists. We, you know, send them um, kind of cool treats and we do get togethers online where we do fun stuff, not just sit around. Um, We do games on, we hired someone to lead games for us a couple months ago. Yeah, it was fun. And I I had no idea we had such sharks in our group, right? But there was some serious sharkiness going on. And uh, my group won. Thank you so much. Um, Not because of me. And um, so we we need that kind of support. We need those networks where we're supportive of each other and listening to each other. Because um, when we jump on each other, it's it doesn't help. We need to let people do what they need to do to take care of themselves and support them in that. And if what they need to do is take a day out and go have ice cream, don't tell them ice cream's not good for them. Because when we are having a bad day, ice cream feels good and it makes our brains happier and we can walk longer tomorrow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, our society and the, the helpers, we, we we all need support. We, and we, and we can't do it by ourselves. No, we can't do it in, in isolation. And so you are doing trainings for therapists. In the area I do. Of grief. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more what that looks like? Yeah. I, I used to do a whole lot of conferences and then they took conferences away from us. And I'm glad they did because truth be told, having had COVID, it's good that we were away for a while. Um, but I love teaching about grief and loss and dementia and coping with chronic illness and other losses because it's not taught in grad school. And now even death and dying is, it's not mandatory. It's, you can take it as an extra class and you have to pay extra for it. And so, you know, therapists coming into being have skipped that course because it was an extra, you know, so many thousand dollars, which to me is a tragedy because there is only one universal experience in this planet, and that is death and dying, grief and loss, hmm. right? Not everybody gives birth, not everyone has a family, but everyone has someone die. And we should be talking about it. And so I teach the courses that I find aren't being taught. Um, and I do them in two hour spurts. So it's two hours for four weeks or two hours a week for three weeks, whatever time I find I need to cover the material. So I I do a dementia 101 course because therapists don't know how to recognize dementia. And 50% of doctors don't ever tell a patient or the family that they have dementia. But they do refer to therapists frequently and say, could you evaluate for depression, please? Or for anxiety, please? And dementia does carry anxiety and depression with it, but that's not the primary. But the therapist who doesn't know how to spot dementia, especially in its early stages, isn't going to know to refer to a neurologist to get a real diagnosis and support their client. I'm not saying discharge, but 
support their client and the family so that they can get stuff done because you don't have a lot of time sometimes with dementia to get all the paperwork done and get all the decisions made yeah. and get situated and take care of things financially. So I teach that course so that we can do better with our families. One in eight of us is going to have dementia. One in eight of us will have symptoms before we're 65. So go to a conference with a hundred people, count the numbers. You're going to have people there. Mm. Um, and so I teach that course. And then I teach a course about um, infant and pregnancy loss, because that's also a very unacknowledged loss. And both parents struggle with that. And that's one of those places where people say the stupidest of things, because when you lose a pregnancy, some of the things people say are, well, you can always have another one. Okay, you're right, but that's not this one. This was my child, right? If this is a wanted pregnancy, by the time you're 12 weeks along, you know which college this kid is going to go to and what their name is and what color their eyes are going to be and what sports you want them to. They've got an identity. All those dreams, yeah. And that's who died. It wasn't a pregnancy loss. It was this little mini person who's not going to be. And then infant loss, people get very weirded out about, and they are not comfortable with it. My wife is one of the few funeral directors I know who really does beautiful work and is comfortable taking care of infants who've died, because for her, that's a gift for the family to make them look sweet and beautiful so the family can have a good goodbye. Likewise, we need to acknowledge that infant loss, it's not about, well, let's just get through it and let's have another one. This is a how are we going to introduce our child who's no longer here for the rest of our lives? How do we introduce them to any child we do have subsequent to this? How do we do this? Right? So I teach that course. Um, I teach one about um, anticipatory grief and what that looks like and how you can weave that into all the work that you do. Cause anticipatory grief comes with everything, including getting married, right. Or getting divorced. All of that has, yes. has, anticipatory grief involved because you have to figure out if you get to keep your side of the bed it's a really big deal right ask 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 at your next couples group you know did you get to keep your side of the bed and you will see the debate rage as to who gets what side even and ask on vacation do you keep the same side and right i can have fun with I, this stuff I, lo <laughs> I love that because i do uh, lots of premarital counseling and i hadn't <laughs> thought of that it's uh, a thing yeah do you the, put the, are, do you roll up the toothpaste or do you leave it <laughs> flat to irritate your partner? Yeah. I, 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 I talk about uh, like the, the adjustment of, of being a good roommate. Um, uh, but there's, there's so, we get so focused in that stage uh, of, of planning a day of a, a, an event that. Instead of our you, life. You don't realize. Yes. Uh, life and, and life is changing. Yes. And so, so many uh, um, single folks, because it, you can't afford to live by yourself hardly right. here in Portland, they are living with friends. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm encouraging people as they get re ready to get married to, to make space for those relationships and their, their friends that they're leaving. Yeah, because you can't walk away and just be a couple you need to take your friends in you need to learn how to incorporate each side of friends mm -hmm. right and you do need to learn how to be a good roommate so that you can be a good spouse because if you're a lousy roommate 
nobody's going to want to stay married to you. <laughs> right. I tell parents who are working with teenagers, you know, you're, you're not just raising a child. You're, re- you're raising a future roommate for college or for whatever. Uh, and if you're doing all the chores for them, nobody's going to like your kid. <laughs> Set yeah. some boundaries. They need them. Yeah. Right. The, uh, it, it, the, the experience of, uh, going to college and learning how to be a good roommate uh it's changing with with online school now and oh it so is even more important to teach that lesson at home because we've all had to learn now how to work from home and so those roommates have learned that you know we don't know if we're gonna have to do this again and how many how many are actually going to go back into offices right how do we accommodate this whole new world we've created so yeah i, I teach every basically any class i can about grief and loss I will do. I also um, teach a course about how to do a grief support group um, and how to do a grief retreat because the more of us who can do grief well, the better. And I do a basic doing grief better course where I talk about death and dying and that process and the theories of grief and loss and which things we shouldn't be doing anymore, like stages. And um, I talk about how to do grief from a solution focused perspective and that grief is not forever perspective as opposed to you need to stay in grief. Otherwise, you didn't love your whoever it was enough. So it's if I find a need, I build a class, basically. Wow. Amazing, Joe. The, uh, can you say a little bit more about grief retreat? Um, because uh, it, it especially, well, I don't. I don't want to stare you to type too much, but uh, with guys, mm-hmm. very often the, the painful, vulnerable emotions, like or emotions at all, like I don't have time for that. I do not want to deal with that. I do not want to face that. I just want life to. Go I on. just want to move on. I just want to move on. Yeah, it, it hurts too much. So the idea of a class or a retreat. Uh, uh, if you're a friend of that type, that person, and you're wanting to support, and and you see them struggling, how do you? I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'm just gonna ask it. How do you get that person to a retreat <laughs> or do a? You know, I what I found <laughs> is people buddy up, and they, you know, I'm gonna go. Do you want to go with me? So mm. some of them sort of fake that a loss is bigger, so that they can get the person who needs to go there there. Or they introduce them to the person who's doing the retreat through some kind of social media so they can sort of get to know them. It's kind of like what clients do. They, they look at us a bunch of times online before they decide to make that phone call, mm-hmm. right? So kind of check it out, make sure it's not too scary. Um, what I find is if I put up the curriculum so they can see exactly what we're going to be working on, then they feel like they're not walking into some unknown thing where we're going to make you do all the touchy-feely and kumbaya and everyone has to cry right now. Men typically, and this is stereotyping, so forgive me, um, will say they don't want to go to a group because they don't want to be around, around a bunch of sad people who just cry. Right? Women are typically okay with some of that stuff, although they don't want that so much either. Men don't want that. I would love to see more men doing grief retreats for men only, because I think that they would be more likely to attend. And um, what I found is that if I do a one day for a particular population 
and we just slug through all of it and we end it with some kind of ceremony that they will then open themselves up to the possibility of reaching out to someone, not necessarily me, but someone for additional support. And um, that's one of the most helpful things that can happen in the course of that day. Wow. I've designed some retreats for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, Friday evening, all day Saturday, part of the day Sunday. Um, and it's ready to go, but COVID got in the way. So that will be happening hopefully in the fall. I've got a, a retreat center in the mountains ready to go. I, I don't like retreats that happen at like hotels and things because it's just too busy and there are too many people there who were there just to go use the pool. And it, it's sort of odd man out syndrome. So it should be someplace where you can, you know, walk out and clear your brain out and not feel trapped in a room, mm -hmm. but where you can work through all the things. And one of the things I always do with grievers is walk through the dying process because when people have witnessed someone die and nobody's prepared them and they don't know what they're seeing and experiencing, they misinterpret it. And that keeps them in grief because they feel guilty or traumatized by what they think they saw and heard as opposed to what really happened. So, uh, so, so how do people misinterpret? Uh when people are dying, there's a, there's a sort of a set number of things that occur um, at different times, depending on the illness, the age, how healthy the person was, but for their illness. But typically everybody ends up on oxygen. Typically everyone ends up on some form of pain medication. Um, and lots of families are afraid of pain medication now, especially morphine, because we have this war on drugs. And I'm not saying that drugs are not dangerous and that people aren't dying of overdoses. Don't anyone hear me say that? But when someone is at end of life, hospices and doctors and hospitals use those medications to relax your body so that breathing is more comfortable. And it's not to speed up the, the dying process. It's to make someone more comfortable, but they don't want to use it. Um, and if they do use it, they will say things like, oh my gosh, I caused so-and-so's death. I've had ministers tell me that I caused my mother's death. You didn't. That was just morphine. That was just to make her more comfortable, right? Um, they also, if they're laying prone, will end up with fluid collecting. Just, you know, we all have saliva. That's reality. It sits on our vocal cords. Saliva on vocal cords without swallowing is not a good sound, right? It makes this horrible. It, it can be very loud sound. The person dying isn't experiencing it. They've done some studies long ago before we had human subject committees and they did EEGs on dying people. And what they found was those folks didn't respond to the sounds their own body was making or the responses their body was having. They only responded to the voices of people they knew and loved. Wow. If a nurse walked in that they didn't know, no response. If they were Shane Stokes breathing, which is when your breathing comes and goes and comes and goes, because your brain is shutting down and not connected to your lungs anymore. So the, the breaths are very irregular. That's misinterpreted as they're gasping for air. The sound in the throat is misinterpreted as they were drowning. The not giving because someone. Because it, it sounds, it sounds awful. awful. Yeah, and it does. And there are meds that can be used to treat it. If you've got a hospice that's really assertive and you call them. Um, and if you have hospice, lots of families are afraid of hospice now too. And um, we also have folks who are, you know, they're reaching out. And so some folks think, well, they were hallucinating. Most people who are dying see people coming to get them. 
and they can be very clear. And if they're at all lucid, they will tell you who's coming for them. You know, my mom visited last night. She said she'd be here tomorrow. And tomorrow they're gone. I am the last person in the world who's going to say those aren't real. Because I've seen way too many people have those experiences and the look on their face when they reach out and they are seeing whatever they're seeing is just, it goes to just, oh, okay. Right? Even if they're unconscious, their facial expression changes. So um, when people die, their eyes don't close. That can creep people out too. That's just because our eyes aren't meant to close. When eyes close, it's because in a casket, it's because somebody has done some extra work to make it happen. But there's a theory that runs around in some cultures that eyes don't close means that there was trauma involved in the death. And it's just because our eyes don't close. So there's all kinds of ways we can misinterpret. There's lots of times the week before death, somebody's not hungry anymore and they're not thirsty anymore and then those who are further outside are saying well you're supposed to feed them put in a feeding tube put in an iv if your systems are shutting down you shouldn't have those things done because it makes a much uglier death and it can cause aspiration pneumonia but afterward that becomes oh my gosh i starved them or i dehydrated I them i didn't do enough yeah mm-hmm so yeah, we, you have to know the dying process to do grief properly mm. or you leave the person traumatized and that's not fair. And they can't, they can't work through their grief if they can't understand what they just experienced and aren't given permission to be relieved that it is over when they need to hear that permission. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That this is such good information, Jill, the, um, and, uh, yeah, I hope anyone who's uh, listening, who is um, caring for a spouse or a parent, um, can can learn more uh, about the dying process to 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 prepare. Um, if you're a caregiver, ask those questions. And if you're a caregiver, take care of yourself. Especially dementia caregivers, they die faster than the person with dementia, not infrequently, mm, because they're so the busy stress. taking. They're stressed and they're not taking care of themselves. The first thing I do with someone who comes in for grief is send them to their doctor. Yeah. And I tell them, I want you to have a full physical. If you haven't had your mammogram, go get it. If you haven't had your other exams, go get them and go get your labs done and make sure your doctor checks your D level, your B level, your thyroid, your folate. I don't want the results. I'm not a doctor. I'm not practicing out of scope. I want them to get those results. So if there's something wrong, they can do something about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because they need yeah, yeah, sometimes they need to hear it from a doctor that yes. you're going to have a heart attack. Like you need to take care of yourself. <laughs> Grief can cause inflammatory process. And so you've if you've got high blood pressure and you haven't been treating it, go get checked. Right? Don't mess around with that. You, you can't see me for grief if you're not going to go to the doctor. Because mm. I don't want to have to be responsible. And, and I feel responsible if you haven't done it yet. So go to the doctor right? Therapists go to the doctor. If you've been working really hard, go to the doctor. Mm. Right? <laughs> they tell people to come see us for their mental health. We need to go see people for our physical health. Oh, you, you, you just nailed me, Jill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I need to schedule <laughs> lab work. It's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, boy, you, you are such a, a wealth of knowledge and, and you've, uh, I'm glad you have these classes and, and, and trainings. Um, as we kind of wind things down uh, for today, because you, you've got a grief group. To, I do to, have a grief to, group to, starting to, at 10. <laughs> to, 
at starting. Um, uh, any last uh, uh, advice or, or wisdom to share? If you're doing grief work with someone and if you're a griever, make sure that you use your sense of humor. Grievers, when they come in to see a therapist, first of all, it takes a long time to go see a therapist if you're grieving. And having seen two terrible therapists for grief, um, I'm sure they're perfectly good therapists for other things, but I'm a therapist, someone died, go see a therapist. First time, um, the therapist looked at me and she said, I just don't know what to say to you. What, what, what do you need in grief? Like, yeah, you're fired, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> and then the second one said the same thing and then also said, why did you remarry? You shouldn't have done that so soon. Like, oh man. Excuse me? Okay. Right? Because intimacy loss, that's another course I teach. That's a whole other thing. We need to know about it. We need to talk about it. And both of them tried to use the miracle question. If you wake up tomorrow and everything is better, what will have changed? It's great if you don't know what to do with someone with anxiety and you're trying to figure out, you know, a treatment plan. Where? Yeah. Yeah. It's right. not good with grief because there's only one answer and you are not Tinkerbell. Right. And, and I will say that. So our grief clients and grievers need humor. They need to see smiles. They need to be given permission to laugh. They need to be given permission to go to Disneyland now that it's open again. Right. For a whole year, I couldn't say that. Um, but we need to give them permission, you know, to go to the, you've got that lovely rose garden in Portland, right? Folks in Seattle need to be able to go out to the, the islands or whatever it is that you do so that you can connect to life again, even while you're working through the loss. And you need to see smiles because smiles make our brains healthier and actually keep us from dying faster as grievers. Most times when you tell someone that you've lost someone, you get this funky look on your face from the other person. Oh, I'm so sorry. Nobody wants to see that look, hmm. right? They want to see, tell me about it. Help, let me understand what happened with you. And then tell me what was funny about them. What made them irritated and laugh with them. It's the first time someone's laughed with them since that person was dying probably because nobody else thinks it's okay. Likewise, don't assume that everyone wants to go to a grief support group. 70% of our population will never step foot in a group. And I'm shooting myself in the foot because oh. I do run them, but they don't want to. Uh, okay. So that's the number one thing I recommend. 70% will not step foot in a group. 80% of therapists won't. We are the absolute worst of the bunch. <laughs> We are we what happens if someone sees I'm grieving? Oh, I don't know. What happens if they think you're human? Right? If you've had a loss, you get to be there too. And if you're sending people to groups or you're going to one, check them out first. Because groups change in personality with the leadership. And if you're in an online situation, they change with who comes in and who comes out. Yeah. So some groups take on this thing where you've got to stay grieving, you've got to stay sad, and that's not healthy. Make sure you're finding one that doesn't do that. If you've got someone who's of faith, a very strong faith, don't assume that their faith is going to be what gets them through because they're hearing at the same time that message that somehow this was part of a bigger plan. And so that puts them in a direct conflict with that faith because if the plan was to remove their loved one from their life, they may not be feeling friendly. Yeah. 
So we need to make sure we're careful with those messages, but we also give them space to come back to that faith when they're done with that exploration. It's an exploration, not a rejection, but make sure you're, you're not putting extra guilt into their world while they're trying to deal with the guilt of the death, right? So many people already have plenty of guilt to deal with. Absolutely. And more than anything, if you are grieving, reach out for someone. And if that someone isn't helping you, walk away from them and find someone else. Because when people die, if you imagine yourself as a circle, if you're the primary griever, and then you've got your next circle of really close people and so on all the way out, you will always lose someone in that close circle. Everybody who has a loss loses people. And you don't expect it. And it's frequently not the people you thought you would lose. Mm. And then frequently there's people in those outer circles who actually need to be brought in because they are there and they're supporting you in the way that you need. You, if you are that center circle, you get to decide who's in and who's out. Mm. And you get to set boundaries. So you get to decide how your grief is going to work. Don't let anyone tell you how fast or how slow. Don't let anyone tell you, no, don't make any changes for a year. It's not true. That's from 1960s made up out of whole cloth grief theory. It's not real. There's no research that supports it anywhere. And uh, don't look for stages. Those are anticipatory grief, not after loss grief. You don't have to be angry and you don't have to bargain after someone dies. You need to reorganize and recover. Oh, man. Uh, I, I want to talk to you another hour <laughs> about the stages of grief now, Jill. Oh, have me back. I'd love to. Oh, please. Yes. Um, thank you for your time today. Um, you, the, what you've learned, it's, it's from, from years of, of being in this with people and going I've, through your, your own. I've walked the walk. I've also, I keep current with the research. Mm -hmm. I'm connected with people who do the work. Um, there are some great therapists out there who have great grief sites, um, and I link them to all my sites so that people can find them. This should be a collective effort, and if we keep current on the research, then we'll know what's theory and what's real, and what's research supported and what's just old knowledge, mm -hmm. right? It's, yeah, it's uh, I love to learn and and and. Uh and find what works. Um, exactly. And what yeah. works for you, because everyone's grief process is their own. Mm -hmm. I, I'm the therapist people find because they come in and they say, I found you online because my story's out there. I'm, I'm not shy about it. And I'm also very transparent. And so they'll say, I, I wanted someone who had walked the walk. And, and besides that, you're older, you know stuff. I'm like, you shut up. You cannot use those <laughs> words around me. I'm the crazy blue haired grief therapist, not the old grief therapist. Um, but on my sites, I make sure that there's all the links to everything. So if they need someone else or something else, they can find it because we should support people in finding the right person or the right group to work with. Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll include uh, the, the, the site in, in the show notes, but could you, um, could you share it? For, for sure. I have jilljohnsonyoung.com, which is still a little weird to me because I'm a th social worker and we don't make .coms, but I have a .com and I like it because it's got a full page of resources. That was the bottom line when I built it. So it's got resources for every kind of loss, pet loss, best friend loss, all the losses we don't talk about. Um, it's also got the courses on it and some of my story. Um, and then I also have the rebelliouswidow.com, 
which goes with my new book, The Rebellious Widow, about how to break the grief rules and how to get through the dying process with a partner and the recovery process. And that one also has um, some pages that are downloadable. They're free, no membership, no nothing, because I'm still a social worker. And it's so you can build your own notebook for someone who's ill and organize all the stuff you need all in one spot. It's got everything you need to do that. Um, it's also got um, exercises you can do on your own or with your therapist um, for the recovery and also for the goodbye process. So that's the rebelliouswidow.com. I'm on Facebook Live every Friday at Humor, Grace, and Grief. I never say that right. With Deborah Joy Hart. That's also on my um, listed on my site. And then I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and all those places, you know, all the things. Instagram, the one with the big eye. I can never remember it. I'm on Instagram. I do um, grief tips when I have a moment, put them up. So yeah, I'm all over social media. Wonderful, Jill. <laughs> and uh, your site's uh, amazing. And, and you've got lots of podcast uh, episodes on there too. I do. And so thank you for being on this podcast. And if you're listening and you want to um, uh, hear more and learn more, from Jill, definitely check out the, the other podcasts that she's been on. And hopefully you'll be this on one will be up there uh, again, too. I hope so. Please <laughs> invite me back. Yes. Thank you so much, uh, Jill, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that amazing? I'm so grateful Jill came on the podcast and shared uh, boy, I, I have more questions listening back to it. Um, and I realized at the beginning of the episode, I didn't uh, acknowledge that I've been away for a few weeks. I thought I'd been gotten off track for like two weeks or so. Uh, but it's been like three and a half since our last episode was Priscilla Klockner. And uh, I think I might have mentioned became a grandpa for the first time. Little Joanna Ray is two weeks old and uh yeah life life has been a little um a little busy uh with her coming uh kaiser permanente uh where i work uh during the day or half the week uh, my day job um our union uh, of therapists and other healthcare professionals and nurses um we averted a strike uh, this month and so I uh, was kind of busy anticipating that uh, but we're back and um, it, it it does get busy during the holidays so I hope you are enjoying time with your family and uh, grief it's a good topic um, because for a lot of folks it's the most wonderful time of the year I love Christmas um, I love Thanksgiving um, but it is associated with loss and grief and memories, sometimes uh, family gatherings um, or the holidays can bring up a lot of stress uh, because uh, family gatherings can be stressful. But sometimes uh, relationships can be uh, ruptured or um, uh there can be conflict and you might not have the opportunity to have family gatherings that you wish you you could or, or want to have um, 
so yeah grief and loss um i i talk uh during the week um to folks who are wanting to work on their health and um and i i speak with a lot of folks um over 50 years old um and in retirement age um and even younger folks with health concerns with injuries um uh with uh job changes employment changes there's so much uh grief like like jill and and i I talked about um just uh in families individually in families in communities um so i hope that this podcast will encourage you to think about process talk more about the grief and the loss that you've experienced or are experiencing in your life and i thank you once again for listening to the podcast and i hope you are well i hope you have a great thanksgiving and a great christmas 